We are in a series in February. This is the third week of February already. There's only one more Sunday left after today in February. Then we're in March. The good news is that cold weather is going to be going away. The bad news is the pollen's on its way. So get to get, get the local honey in you and get some Claritin. It's coming. Uh, but we, uh, we're doing this series called Love is a Battlefield. And uh, we're talking about the tensions in relationship. Uh, this is not a marriage series or just dating, but it is about all of our relationships that we have and the tensions that are present in all our relationships. And we're looking at what it looks like biblically to love each other and to love God. And uh, the first week we talked about the, the tension of he versus me and what it looks like to be in relationship with God himself. And that uh, the, the, the flesh is always getting in the way and there's always going to be tension in our relationship with God until we are with him face to face. And then last week we talked about forgiveness, uh, forget versus remember. And the tension of what to do with offenses when they come into our relationships and into our lives. And today, we are talking about the tension between kind and nice. Now, some of you might think that's a little confusing because these words are used interchangeably in our culture now. But they're actually two very different words. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to challenge and, ch and bless and encourage you today through this message. Uh, I have a text verse for the day that uh, I'm going to read out of John 15. If you would, please stand with me. As we read the, the Word of God together, the words will be on the screen if you don't have a, a Bible with you. John 15, verse 9, these are the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And he tells us why we should do this. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's a beautiful promise from our Lord and Savior. My command is this. Here's, here's what I believe is his definition of kind. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it is your word that transforms us. It's not my words. <laughs> it's going to be your words. And I pray, Father, today that our hearts would be good soil. Lord, I pray that for every person under the sound of my voice, that they'd be able to leave behind what they brought with them today that might be holding them back and be given completely and totally to you during this time. Lord, do your work in our hearts. We honor you. We glorify you, Jesus. This is all for you. You're the only one worthy of any of our lives, and we give them to you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. amen. Okay, before you're seated, I know I'm, I'm given to understand there's some introverts in church don't really like greeting each other all the time. So we're gonna do it a little differently today. So I just want you to repeat after me. God help me, God help me. To, be nice to be nice and kind. In Jesus' name, In Jesus name. Amen. amen. Hey, y'all prayed, good job. Okay, now you can be seated. Don't worry, extroverts, we'll give you plenty of opportunities in the future to greet and say hi and tell everybody how much you love them, how pretty they are today. But uh, we do wanna do want to help the introverts as well sometimes. Got a couple of those in my family, actually. So. so John 15, the text verse I read, I believe one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. In fact, uh, some of the greatest revelation I got of God's love for me came from John 15. And uh, this chapter is, this is the one where Jesus talks about being the vine, we're the branches, and that, that we are to be grafted into him, and, and that he loves us so much. He, he talks about his love for us, and he even alludes to what he's going to do for us, that he's going to lay down his life for us. And uh, it's beautiful. In fact, I believe if we as the church could get this, just this chapter alone in our hearts where it really meant something to us, we could change the world. 
really do. We can change the world with the love of Jesus, but we have to experience it first before we can share it with others, right? But then Jesus has to go on in verse 12 and 13 and drop this bomb on us about how we're supposed to live and love too. And we'd like to skip over these verses sometimes, but he's actually talking to us about what it looks like to be a disciple of his. And he, he tells us basically that there is no place in the life of a disciple of Jesus for lazy love. We cannot be lazy. He says, he says I want you to love others like I have loved you. Well, that's quite a tall order. Because he says there's no greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. This is what kindness looks like. So I want to get into the, the difference between kindness and nice. Okay, because like I said, they're used interchangeably a lot. Now, they're not opposites. You know, kind is not the antithesis of nice. I, I think the best way to look at it is both of these words are about others, right? You're nice to others. You're kind to others. And so uh, I would say nice is more the, the lower level, bottom level of serving others. And kind is actually deeper. Nice is a little more superficial. Kind is going to a deeper places of serving and loving others. But unfortunately, like I've said, these, ver these words have been interchangeable, and it's a lot easier to be nice than it is to be kind. I want to give you a couple characteristics of each to kind of help understand where I'm going today. I have the, uh, the three P's of nice, not the vegetable, the P, the letter P. Okay? And the first one is that nice is polite. Polite, it's, you know, if, we're, if you're a nice person, if you're being nice, you're going to be polite. You're going to hold the door for somebody. You know, that's nice. You know, you hold the door, you... You go get them a cup of coffee, a coworker. You go, you know, you, you run an errand for somebody. You do something. You're you're agreeable. You're just nice and polite. You say yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Those are all very nice things to do, right? So nice is polite. It's also pleasant. When you're when you're nice, you're you're just a pleasant person. When you're being nice, you're smiling. You know, a nice person is is always got a smile on their face. They're they're very agreeable. They don't like to stir the pot. You know, they're they're gonna kind of go with the flow. They're gonna be even keel and and just uh, very pleasant. To be around we all like to be around pleasant people right and then thirdly they're positive being nice is positive it's it's having positive energy it's it's looking on the bright side of things it's you know we don't show the niceness doesn't show the negative you know we we kind of we put up a facade if we have to so that people don't see the negative that's nice that's what nice likes to be not the, the the worst thing for nice would be somebody that's disagreeable or a pot stirrer or or just kind of has a mean face or is acting ugly, you know, things like that. That's the worst thing in the world because nice will always want to avoid conflict at all costs. Now, those things aren't bad to be nice, to be polite, pleasant, and positive. I would not say for a second that those are negative things, but they're also very surfacey. They're very shallow. Now, kind would go to another level. Kind, I have the three C's for kind. And the first one would be caring. Kind is, to be kind is caring. It's to be sympathetic, but also empathetic. Okay, we're not just, you know, feel bad for somebody. We actually are willing to get into their situation to be a blessing, to be a help to them, to be empathetic and to go the extra mile for those pe for people. Uh, it's also about conviction. Kindness is about having conviction and standing on your convictions, to have the moral uh, standard that you are willing to uphold. That's also kindness when we stand up for what we believe in. And then it's also character. Character is foundational fortitude or humility to serve other people, to make other people's needs a priority in our life. To, to sum it up, nice is easy and kind is gonna cost me. That's what it boils down to. And I can tell you today that we as followers of Jesus are called to be nice and kind. 
we're called not just to take the easy road, but to take the road that's going to cost us something. Jesus said, I've laid down my life for you, and I expect you to do the same. And Paul, in Philippians 2, he kind of, Paul talks about it a lot too. And I'm going to read a few verses from him today. The first one is out of Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what kindness looks like. There's no tension there, right? That's easy. That's really, it's easy to not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I've never dealt with that. I'm sure you guys haven't either. There's always going to be tension when it comes to living out this gospel in our lives because we're not perfect. We're not completely glorified and redeemed. Well, we are redeemed, but we are not without the flesh that would want to get in the way. So there's always going to be tension when it comes to living this out. And, you know, many of us want to brush over this verse and act like it's no big deal. But you know what? If you really want to be serious about your relationship with God, it's not about brushing over anything. It's about taking these words of the apostles and the words of Jesus that we find in our Bible and taking it to heart, taking it seriously. Nice is what society wants. You know, nice is society's idea. In fact, society just wants everybody to be nice, to be polite, to be pleasant, to be positive. That's what society wants. And society wants the church to get in line with it too. Especially those that would be opposing God want the church to get in line with what it looks like to just be nice. We don't want anything to do with your convictions. We don't want anything about your, your character and you standing on your morals. We just want you to be nice. You just sit down, be quiet, and don't force what you want on me. That's what the world wants. And unfortunately, we as the church have really allowed that to perpetuate in life and in our society. And, uh, you know, I have to challenge you today because I, the, the thing about nice, nice is good, but nice didn't save us from our sins. Nice didn't atone for our sins. Nice didn't pay for our sins. Nice didn't bring forgiveness of our sins. It was the kindness of God that brought us what we need. It was his kindness and his goodness that brought us what we need, not just being nice. And you know what his kindness was? It was he cared for us, it was his character, and it was his conviction that led him to the cross to pay for our sins. That's what kindness does. That's what kindness looks like, and that's what kindness is supposed to look like in our life. I mean, think about it. What if Jesus was just nice? What if he came to this earth, earth and, you know, he didn't want to stir the pot, so he was just nice to the Pharisees, and he was just nice to the religious leaders, and he was just nice to the demons that were in Mary Magdalene and the other people that he cast demons out of. He'd just been like, you know, I hate that for you. <laughs> Hope it works out. God bless you. But he was just nice to them. Would that have done anything for any of us? Or what if Paul was just nice? What if Paul was just like, you know, guys, can't we just all just get along, you know? If, if, you, know, if you know the history of the letters that Paul wrote, wrote that are in our New Testament, a lot of them had to do with confronting the churches that he planted and rebuking them for heresy and for, and for giving in and compromising to society. What if he had just been like, you know what, guys, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, not, big, it's not a big deal. Being nice is like watching someone drown and just kind of telling them you're praying for them. You know, hey, I hope it works out for you. <laughs> I'm praying. What kindness is about stepping out of your comfort zone and jumping in the water, risking your own safety, getting, letting your own comfort behind and risking it to make it to where that person can actually survive. That's what kindness is. Nice, there's no place for niceness when people are drowning. It's about being kind 
And there will always, always, always be a tension in our life between nice and kind. Okay, I'm not here to point fingers. I'm here to speak truth because I'm in the same journey as you guys are. I don't live in a bubble. I like to just be nice sometimes. I like to, I mean, even in marriage, sometimes you just want to be nice. You want to avoid conflict, but sometimes conflict needs to be dealt with, right? In relationships, conflict needs to be dealt with. And we as followers of Jesus are called to be kind and nice. So what I want to do today is I want to give you a few of the uh, battlefields of nice versus kind. It's what we've been doing this month, kind of going through battlefields, tensions, and all of these uh, relationships we have. So I want to give you a few of them today. The first one is deception versus truth. So this is, a, this is a tension that we're going to have when it comes to nice versus kind because, you know, when people are just nice, deception actually runs rampant. Deception loves nothing more than a bunch of nice people. You know, deception is a spirit. There's a spirit of deception that is in this world. One of the major characteristics of your enemy is deception. The first thing he did that we see in the Bible was that he deceived Eve by getting her to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He is a deceiver. So he lo- deception gets to thrive when we are just focused on being nice, when we are focused on giving that illusion of peace and unity. Because sometimes it'll, it'll, it'll appear like peace and unity for a while until it blows up, right? And the enemy would, loves nothing more than we are, when we are just fixated on being nice. You know, it's funny because I've, I've talked to multiple people that... Um, have been divorced, and when they talk about, you know, the time leading up to their divorce, I've, I've heard this multiple times of someone saying like, yeah, you know what, we never even really fought. We never had a lot of fights. I mean, in fact, I don't remember having a fight with my ex-wife, and uh, we would just, we just kind of grew apart and got to the point where, you know, eventually the marriage was broken and we divorced. And uh, when I see that, I'm, uh, that, that's exactly what we're talking about here is that they're so concerned with just being nice. Like, I don't want to have to deal with the issue at hand, so we're just going to be nice. We're going to avoid. We're going to give the illusion of peace and unity. And I'm not saying if you don't fight all the time, you're not having peace and unity. Some, some couples just get along better than others in some respects. But, but to say that you never fought, but now you're divorced, something's missing there, right? We're missing something. But we do that in life, too. We do that in life. We want to avoid conflict, and we just want to be nice when in reality, we're not doing anything to help advance relationship. We're not doing anything to help advance the gospel or the kingdom of God because we're just so fixated on being nice. And the, the deception gets to run rampant because kindness actually stands for conviction and truth. Kindness is about truth. You see, uh, the, Paul, Paul's letter to the Galatians that you have in your Bible he wrote that letter to the churches that he had planted in the province of Galatia. We actually were talking about this Wednesday. We had our first, our inaugural third Wednesday night uh, this, this week. And uh, the women stayed in here and enjoy, led a time with them. And the men, we went back here in the music suite. And there's about 20, I don't know, 22, 24 of us back there just going through the book of Galatians. We're just doing a Bible study for the next, as, as long as it takes. And uh, just gave us some history about the book of Galatians. And it was Paul writing to the churches that he had planted there. He planted these churches, and then he left to move on to plant some more churches. And he got word that the churches in Galatia were falling into some heresy. That these Judaizers, they were called, were, were Jews that got converted, but they only kind of partially accepted the gospel. They were also wanting to bring the law in with it, because they were saying the gospel of Jesus wasn't enough that they were, they were telling these churches in Galatia, hey, there's no way that what Paul said to you is right, that you're just saved by grace through faith and nothing else. That's, that can't be true. 
And so they were telling these guys, like, hey, men, if you, you, know, if you haven't been circumcised, you need to get circumcised. You've got to do some things that the law says, too, to add to this, this grace that God has given you. And that's what really is going to make you saved. And so these people were believing this, and it got back to Paul. So that's why he wrote the letter of Galatians. He wrote it to the churches saying, hey, we've got to stick to the truth here. The gospel is what I said it is. You don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. It is what it is. And so that's why he wrote this letter talking about how they were trying to put themselves back in bondage. That's why in Galatians 5, he says it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't put yourself back in bondage. The gospel is too good to be true, but it really is that good and it really is that true. Right? So Paul was standing on his conviction. He was worried more about truth than he was about being nice. Because deception had come in because these churches, these guys were trying to be nice. They're like, well, you know, that makes sense. They believe it. And, or they're saying that we should do this. So, you know, we don't want to you know, we don't know enough, so we're just going to do it all. You know, it can't hurt to do both, you know, when in reality it absolutely hurts. Puts us right back in the chains that Jesus broke off of us. And Paul's confronting them and rebuking them for them. And here's the deal, church. What we learned from that whole thing is that the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive, especially to those who do not understand it. Who those whose hearts have not been enlightened by the truth of God's word. You know, for some of us, you may have been a Christian for so long that you don't even think about it being offensive anymore. Your heart's been transformed. You know that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And you've given your life to Jesus. You've seen what he's done. And you know, you, it, you get it. You know, when you get it, you get it. Because when we see our own heart for what it really is, <laughs> I don't need anybody to tell me I'm a sinner. Right? When God reveals it to you, you know it. But let me tell you, to those that don't know it and haven't understand it, the gospel is incredibly offensive. And so it is so important that we are committed to truth and not allowing deception to come in to, to dilute it or pervert it, as Paul says in Galatians 1. Because, see, the gospel is offensive to many things. It's offensive to our pride. Because you, you tell them about the gospel and they're looking at you going, wait a minute, you're telling me I'm a sinner? I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I've never broken the law. I pay my taxes. I, I'm good to my kids. I provide a home for my family. I'm a good person. You're telling me I'm a sinner? And on top of that, you're telling me God had to come down to earth in the form of a man and he had to die a horrific death on a cross for my sins? I wasn't even born yet. That's offensive. And it's offensive to our self-reliance. It's offensive to our common sense. You know, my common sense says, wait a minute, you're telling me that God, because the God of the universe came to earth as a human, and then he dies because everybody rejects him, and then not only that, three days later, he raises, rises from the dead, and now he's back in heaven? Common sense, that doesn't make any sense. You sound like a crazy person, right? And then on top of that, we're, we're, we're offending the self-reliant part, the independent part of us. All the independent people in the house know exactly what I'm talking about. Because here comes Jesus saying, well, now that I've done all this, your life isn't your own anymore. I bought it. I paid a hefty price for it. You don't get to decide what you're going to do. Your life is mine. You have to lay down your life. You have to take up your cross and follow me daily. That tells, I'm independent. I don't need anybody. I've gotten to where I am in life by my hard work, by busting my tail. And you're telling me I need some God now? The gospel's offensive, guys. It's offensive. And that's okay, but we have to be careful not to be watering it down Amen. or diluting it yes. or compromising it because we're concerned that it's going to be offensive to people that have not received the truth of what it is yet. 
And that's what Paul was doing. But if we're not committed to the truth of it, deception will come in. Deception will come in and it will rule the day. We have been commissioned by Jesus to be his hands and feet, to be bearers of the truth of his word and to stand against deception that is wanting to come into society, into church, into your own life every day. Every day. And we can't just stand back and think, you know what, I'm just going to be nice. I'm just going to be nice. And somehow, someway, God's going to figure it out. He's going to get to their heart and he's going to get them saved. I'm just going to be nice. There's nowhere in the Bible that that is anything other than heresy. Because it's not about being nice. It's about being his salt, being salt to the earth. It's about being his hands, his feet. It's about being his mouthpiece. Amen. Now, again, it's, it's not about beating people over the head and telling them they're sinners and they're going to hell. And smashing them with your Bible. We're not about that. We're about sharing our story. Yes. We're about sharing the truth. Yes. We're about sharing what Jesus has done in our life. Yes. The enemy is defeated by the word of our testimony, not just in our life, but in the lives of others that hear that testimony. Right? People are drawn to us when we are authentic and when we're transparent about who we are and what God's doing in our life. And you know why people are so drawn to authenticity and transparency? You know why people are so, want to be around people that are just authentic? I mean, that's a buzzword now. You hear it so much. People want, to be, people want everybody to be authentic and transparent. People are drawn to that for a very simple reason. Because every single one of us is struggling with not being good enough. Every one of us. There is nobody you'll ever meet that feels like they're good enough. And if they do, they're delusional. Because none of us are. Or they've convinced themselves that they are because they're just putting up walls. None of us are good enough. And that's the beauty of the gospel, <laughs> is we don't have to be good enough. We tell them what the, who the Lord is and what he's done in our life. And then we tell them we're still on this journey too. But man, when you, when you can share your testimony about how good God has been to you, in spite of what you've had to go through, that is, that is breaking down walls. That is the truth that sets people free. Every day, all day long. All right, let me give you the next one. It's easy versus sacrificial. This is going to be a tension in our life <laughs> forever. Because I said being nice is very easy. It's very, it's very little commitment. You know, it's, it's paying for the guy behind you at Starbucks, paying his $6 coffee bill. That's nice. But it's not a big commitment for most of us, right? It's easy. It's, like I said, it's holding the door. It's being polite. We're not called to just take the easy road. Those are good things. If you pay for my coffee in front of me, I'm, I'll thank you. I'll, I'll blow my horn at you. That's good, but it, that's not enough. We're called to be sacrificial because kind is sacrificial. It's putting myself in a position of discomfort for you. That's what kind is. It's not being so consumed with my own comfort, my own safety. It's being concerned about you. And I'm here to tell you today, church, that there is nothing easy about being kind if you're going to do it biblically which also can mean and does mean for us that there is nothing easy about the christian life jesus did not promise us it would be easy he did not promise us one time that it would be easy in fact living this christian life i've been saved for about 30 years now where i can say i was actually saved and i can look back to my time before being saved and a lot of it was easier because you just live for yourself it's unfulfilling, but it's easier. This Christian life is not meant to be easy. And I'm, I want to tell you today, and I don't, 
I don't mean to offend anybody. I'm not here to offend anyone, but I'm also here to speak the truth. Amen. And that if, if the Christian life for you has been easy, you are not doing it right. I don't, have to, I don't have to hear your story to know you are not doing it right. And you're saying, well, there's not a right or wrong way to do the Christian life. There sure is. If you're going to do it biblically, I mean, we're not talking about earning your salvation. I'm talking about living the scriptural life, the life that Jesus has called us to live. John 15, the verse I read, he said, I want you to love others like I have loved you. It's not a suggestion. It's not. He's like, if you're going to be my disciple, this is how it looks, guys. It's not meant to be a pleasure cruise. We're on a battleship. We're an army. And we are fighting against the enemy and his schemes every day if we're doing it right. So if we're doing it right, we're living lives of sacrifice. We're living lives of sacrifice. You see it all through the Bible. Now, I will say, I say it's not, you're not doing it right if it's easy. That's assuming that never being selfish isn't easy for you or laying down your life isn't easy. Never having selfish ambition or, or vain conceit, never having hatred in your heart. If you, if you never struggle with any of that, then maybe it is easy. No, bless, if blessing others that curse you and persecute you and hate you, if that's easy, then the Christian life could be easy for you. But I haven't met anybody yet that could say yes to those. Nobody. It's not meant to be easy for us. It is meant to be that we would sacrifice, live a life of sacrifice because it's worth it. Because, because Jesus did it for us. Somebody else did it for you. And it's worth it for us to do it for others so that his kingdom would come, so that his will would be done on the earth like it is in heaven. And let me tell you, there's no sacrifice too great for us here on earth because the Bible is pretty clear the rewards that we, we get to receive in heaven are worth it. Amen. I don't know what they are going to look like, but I can tell you this, I know it's going to be worth it. And that's why we can live these sacrificial lives because we know this isn't the, this isn't the best part of life. This is actually the worst part of life. The best part happens after we leave this life. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers. He says, I'm begging you. He said, I've heard this straight from the horse's mouth, guys. I'm begging you. This isn't coming from me. This is coming from Jesus. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying, guys, I'm begging you, please. I'm telling you. I can't tell you exactly how it's all going to look. I can't even explain why it's so great and why it's the right thing to do. But I'm telling you, in view of God's mercy to you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. See, we can do that as followers of Jesus because before you're a, a Christian, your life is about you. It's about meeting your needs. It's about getting, getting yours and taking care of maybe those closest to you. But then as we give our lives to Jesus, we realize that our life is not about us, but it's more fulfilling because we're living for a greater purpose. See, you can live for yourself and succeed and have good things happen. And if you've had that in life, if you're old enough and you've had successes in life, you know, because I've had them too, you know how empty they are. They're empty. They're hollow. They don't, they don't feel good. I, I've had times in my life where I had a lot more money than I have today, and it was a thousand times more empty because it was for me. But when we're living for him, we're living for a greater purpose. It's not just for us. 
And it, there's a fulfillment that comes, and it even it, and that's what gives us the strength. It's what gives us the wherewithal. It's what gives us the motivation to live lives that are sacrificial, because we know it's not about us. It's not about us. Listen, we want the church to grow. I'm not talking about just New Hope. Do we want the if we want the church at large to grow? And I think we would all say, yes, we want it to grow. Not just in numbers in a church on Sunday morning. I'm talking about our influence in society. I'm talking about the basic Christian values that, that we would like to see in society. Those values that seemingly every week now are eroding more and more and more in our society. Do we want that, to, that shift to happen to where we're getting momentum? Where, where we're seeing the Christian values grow in our society? We're pe seeing people drawn to the Lord. We're seeing people drawn to church. Do we want all those things to happen in, our, in, in life and we get to see it? And it starts right here. It starts right here about living a life that's not for myself, but that's sacrificial. For us to think we could just come together and have church and make it really cute and pretty and somehow people are just gonna start coming in and they're just gonna fall in love with Jesus is a fallacy. He is using us. We are his people. We are his hands and feet. We are the salt of the earth. We are a light, the light of the world. We are, you and me. We can pray all we want, but if we're not living sacrificial lives, if we're not putting other people's needs ahead of our own in some cases, revival's not gonna happen, spiritual awakening's not gonna happen, momentum's not gonna happen until we in the church get this. We have to get it. We cannot live for ourselves. We have to get so sick and tired of just living for ourselves and then hoping God will figure something out when he's saying, I've given it to you. I want you to do something with what I've given you. You know, if I, if I give one of my kids a hundred bucks and then 10 minutes later she comes to me and says, dad, I want to go out to eat. Can you give me some money? I say, no, I already gave it to you. Use the money I gave you, kid. And Jesus said, I gave you my spirit. I gave him to you. He's in you. He is the one that's leading you into all truth, right? We need to be on our knees praying, but, but we can't just stay. If everybody just prays, nothing happens. We got to get up too and go. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Amen. Amen. It starts with us. You know, easy and nice doesn't accomplish anything except one, one thing it accomplishes. It makes people feel good about me. If I'm nice and I'm easy and I'm pleasant, I'm polite, I'm agreeable. People like me but it's not drawing people to the cross because we have to see our hearts for what they really are. If we want to be effective, we have to help people see their hearts for what they really are too. It's the kindness of God. In fact, I shared that verse earlier, but I didn't give a reference. I want to give it to you again. Romans two, verse four, Paul says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. What is kindness? How does he display his kindness, his kindness now? Through you and me. That's how he shows his kindness to the world. That's what's going to lead people to repentance. Not beating them over the head with our Bibles, but being kind to them, caring for them, and having enough character to, to be given to them, and standing on our convictions, and sharing our story. Mm. God did it for you through someone else. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, somebody was kind to you. They weren't just nice. 
Them being nice and buying your coffee didn't get you saved. Somebody shared that love of Jesus with you. And you had to see your heart and to see, oh my goodness. My heart really is deceitfully wicked above all else and there is no cure for it. You had to see it. And others have to see theirs too. All right, let me give you the last one. The tension of the fear of man versus fear of the Lord. This, this could be a series on its own. So I'm going to try to finish here in the next two and a half hours, okay? Um, one of the biggest tensions in the life of a Christian is fear of man versus fear of God. In fact, it's probably, it's, it's, if it's not the biggest, it's definitely one of the biggest. And it comes down to who do we honor? This is not fear, like trembling, shaking in our boots. This is, this is who we honor, whose approval we want. See, fear of man, if we, if, we are, if we are given to the fear of man, it means we want man's approval. Now, wanting man's approval is not a bad thing. You know, I want, I want my wife's approval in life. I want my kids' approval. I want people that I, or I'm in a relationship with, I want their approval. That's not a bad thing. But what fear of man does, it elevates that to just not wanting it, but having to have it. Like, my success in life is based on whether or not people approve of me. That's what fear of man is. And we struggle with that in the church. Wanting, wanting man's approval above all else. And the fear of God is wanting God's approval above all else. Wanting to live our life to honor him, to please him more than we would want to please man. And we are called to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom in your life, it starts by having an honor and a reverence for him above all else. Above all else in our life. I mentioned to you Galatians, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatians. And uh, he started off with this rebuke, talking to them about who he fears and who he's here to serve. In fact, in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, I'll read that verse to you. It says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? So he's saying, do I have the fear of man or the fear of God? He's probably talking to himself a little bit as much as he's talking to them. He said, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's Paul, because Paul you know, had this huge call on his life to you know, basically write half the Bible. Nope. This is for each and every one of us. This is not for super Christians. He is saying you cannot do both. He's saying do not be deceived, you guys. You cannot live to please man and to please God. You can't do it. Now, this isn't the superficial, like what I'm talking about. This is about who's going to have first place. God has to have first place. You cannot be a servant of Christ if he does not have first place in your life. Now, this goes against, frankly, this goes against some, some theology we have. Because there's, there's, some, there's some things that have caused, you know, the erosion in our society has really... Uh, gotten into the church in a lot of ways to where we've allowed some of it into the church into our own lives and has caused us to have the fear of man above the fear of God some of that is based on bad theology it's based on this this idea that uh, that God's here for us you know the entitlement you guys have entitlement's a, a big thing that we're hearing it feels like every generation gets a little more entitled than the last right and some of that's based on the prosperity we've had. So people just feel entitled to whatever. Well, there's also theology that tells us that we're entitled to everything that we want from God. You know, that, 
that we, we become a Christian and then it's God's job to take care of us the rest of our life and meet all of our needs and do everything we need him to do. And that God's really here for us. Now, does God meet our needs? Is he here to help us? Is he a helper? Is he somebody we can trust and live for? Of course he is. But he's not here for us. We're here for him. God is about God first. He is about his glory. He's about his kingdom. He's about his will. Jesus didn't show us a lot of how to pray exactly, but when he did, he said to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on the earth. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible where he says, hey, pray that your kingdom would come and pray that your will would be done. Ask God to make sure that your will is accomplished in life, and that, he makes, that he moves heaven and earth to make sure your purposes and your will is accomplished. Absolutely not. We get it completely backwards. It is about him. Our life is here to serve him, to serve his purpose. Even, even the purpose for our life, first and foremost, is to honor him. It's to fear him. It's to revere him above all else. And so we've, we've flipped the script a little bit, and then it becomes the sphere of man because uh, we don't fear God anymore. We don't have as much reverence for God because he's supposed to do what we want. So then we, we focus on making sure that we get the approval of men too. And then there's also the obsession with being relevant that we have in the church. We're obsessed with being relevant. And listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be relevant. You know, the, 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 the world doesn't want to be part of a, of a faith that's completely oblivious to the world and everything around us. I don't think we shouldn't be that at all. But man, I think we've probably gone out of balance a little bit to where we're so concerned with being relevant. We feel like our relevance is what's going to draw people to God. That is not what draws people to God. It might get them in the door, but it's not going to draw people to God. We have to be, we have to be obsessed with the truth of the gospel and of the fear of God. And teaching people what it's like to fear God. Parents, teaching your children what it looks like to honor and revere God. To live a life of holiness for his name's sake because he's deserving of it and he's worthy of it. It's up to us to teach our kids what it looks like to fear the Lord. To have an honor for him. But I think that one of the biggest reasons that we struggle with fear of man, in the church even, is the fear of rejection. Rejection is... Definitely, without question, one of the biggest fears we have as human beings because nobody wants to be rejected, right? In fact, if I asked you to think about a time you were rejected, probably all of us could go to a place pretty quickly without a lot of work of somewhere where we were rejected by a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a, a spouse or a parent or a leader or, or somebody in authority in our life even where we felt the sting of rejection. And nobody, but nobody likes to be rejected. I mean, it, it has caused people to completely change the course of their life because of rejection. And the fear of man is all about rejection. It's about wanting the approval of people because we do, it's not even that we necessarily want them so much to like us as much as we just don't want to be rejected because rejection stinks. It really does. I mean, Samuel himself, the greatest judge that... Israel had probably when the when the Israelites came to him and said Samuel we want a king you know they hadn't had a king up to this point they just were led by judges and Samuel said you know it's just always been this way we've had judges we don't need a king and they're like no we want a king we want to be like other countries and so Samuel goes back to God and says God they want a they want a king they're rejecting me and God says they're not rejecting you they're rejecting me but we know even Samuel 
the priest of the Lord, the judge of all of Israel at the time, even dealt with rejection because of what they wanted. So, of course, it's a real thing. But we have to remember, too, that when people reject us because we fear God, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. Now, again, that's easy for me to say on a stage on a Sunday morning, but sometimes it sure feels like they're rejecting us, doesn't it? It can sting and it can hurt. But it doesn't mean that we can compromise or give in to that fear of man in our life. I pray for us that we would have the mind of Paul. That we would not, you know, Paul didn't actually say this, I'm not quoting him, but you could see through his, the books that he wrote, that in the Bible, that he had this attitude of, after what God's done for me, what else can I do but live for him, but fear him, but honor him? Where else would I go? There's nothing else I can even do. There's no comparison. He's that good. He's that faithful. He's, he's, he's been that much to me. He saved me. I was, on this, I was on this path, and he completely changed the course of my life. What else can I even do? God forbid that I would live my life looking for the approval of men. And that, this is going to be a tension in our life forever, in this life. But it's so important that we're always, always resetting, always reminding ourselves not to fear man, but to really live to to receive the approval of God to where when I get and stand before him after I leave this life that he would look at me and say well done good and faithful servant well done come enter in that's what I want and that 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 would be our the cry of our heart in our life you know uh, David King David in Psalm 56 11 look what he said he said in God I trust I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, you might read that and think, well, that was King David. He was king, king of Israel. I mean, he was sitting on his throne. He could order someone's head chopped off if they made him mad. You know, he didn't need approval of men. He didn't write this when he was king. He wrote this when he was a prisoner to the Philistines. He was alone, and he was scared. And yet he wrote this. In God, I trust. He was encouraging himself. He was reminding himself that God is the one I trust in. He is the one that I put my hope in. He's the one that I put my faith in. He's saying, who shall I fear? What can man do to me? See, here's the beauty, church. When we fear God first, we don't have to fear anything else. We don't have to fear anything else if we fear him first. And the opposite is also true. If you have fears in your life that are crippling you, it is because in that part of your life, you do not fear him above all else. Amen. That's right. But if we fear him, we don't have to fear. Now, that doesn't mean everything, if we fear him first, everything goes our way. doesn't mean that at all. It just means that our hope is not in those things. You know, there's a lot of fear in the church. There's a lot of fear. You know, we're... The church, we're, we're much more terrified of COVID-19 than we are of God. I mean, it's true. It's true. I, I mean, you see it everywhere. You see it all over this country, still all over the world. In the church, there's a fear of COVID-19. And I'm not minimizing the ramifications of that virus, but I'm telling you, we're not meant to live in fear of it. We're, we're, we're meant to use wisdom, but we're not meant to live in fear. 
And if we fear God, we don't have to fear those things. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, he kind of reiterates what David said in Psalm 56, in Hebrews 13, 6. He says, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Very similar to Psalm 56. And the beauty of this, he says, so we say with confidence. So that tells me he's referring to the previous verse. This is why he can be confident. So we go back one verse to verse 5. It says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Is that enough for us? Is that enough? It should be enough. But I guess if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're up in our feels, and it's not enough. The, the fear of, you know, I'm, I'm finding out I might lose my job, or, or my, my wife might leave me. Or my kid might get sick or not, not live for Jesus. Or, you know, those things that are very real, sometimes saying never will he leave me or never will he forsake me may not be enough in the moment. But you know what? That's when we need to stir ourselves up in the Lord. That's when we stir ourselves up like David. We say, I'm going to trust in my God. What can man do to me? What can he do to me? When we have an eternal perspective, nothing in this world can shake us to the point that we would fear man over God. Nothing. You know, Paul talks about, um, what he's talking in Galatians about, you know, that he is a servant of Christ, that he wouldn't be a servant of Christ if he was trying to please man more than God. He's, he's basically challenging us not to be shallow Christians. You know, I, I just touched on this last week about, you know, being us as Christians hanging out in the kiddie pool, you know, in the shallow end because it's safe and we know what to expect and there's no danger in the kiddie pool. And God's saying, I don't want you in the kiddie pool. I'm calling you into the deep. I want you into the deep places with me where you have to trust me. You don't have to trust anybody in the kiddie pool. I can take care of myself. But if I'm in the deep, I got to tr- have an anchor to hold on to. I got to have a boat. I need Jesus because that's where the storm rages. That's where the waves get big. And I got to have somebody to hold on to. And Jesus is saying, I want you to come into the deep with me. And we would say, I don't want to do that. But I'm here today to tell you it's not up to you if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. Oh, that we would have the mind, the mind of Christ and the heart of Paul. When he said in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not our life. It's not our life. Paul's not talking, this is not just some memoir of Paul, an autobiography talking about what God has called him to. This is the word of God telling us what we're called to. We are crucified with Christ. It is no longer us that live, but Christ who lives in us. Now we still have to live in this body, but he says the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God. I'm not hanging out in the kiddie pool. I'm going into the deep because that's the only place I want to be. Because that's where I experience his presence. That's where I experience his power. That's where I experience the grace in my life. Because in my weakness, he's made strong. Because that's who he is. Amen. Let me leave you with this. God blesses those that fear him. Now, it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean everything's going to go our way just because we fear him. But there is blessings that come from living a life of fearing the Lord. You know, Abraham's a great example of that. Most of you know the story of Abraham. He was, he was old, had no kids, and God came to him one day and said, you're going to be the father of a nation. 
even though he was old. And he said, I don't have any kids. He said, you're going to have a kid by this time next year. And sure enough, Isaac's born. It was the, the child of the promise, he's called, because he was going to be the father of a nation. And was, the Lord was going to bless the whole earth through him. And then God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. So Abraham gets his stuff, goes up on the mountain, sets up the wood, ties his son down to the altar, pulls his knife out, ready to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise. And the angel stops him in that moment. Look what he says in Genesis 22, verse 12. The angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. God blesses us when we fear him. And some of us are missing out on his blessings because of compromise. Some of us have, are just determined we're going to live a life of compromise and we're missing out on seeing God's provision in ways that we can't see it on our own. We bow to the God of common sense. We as Christians aren't necessarily meant to live by common sense all the time. There's a place for it. We wear our seatbelt because it's common sense. But we don't just live our whole spiritual life based on common sense. We, we base our life on the fear of the Lord and honoring him. And he may speak to us something that to the world sounds crazy. I just got done telling you the gospel is offensive. People think the gospel is nuts for those of us that haven't had their eyes open to see it. And so the same thing as we walk this life. There's things that God would have us do that look crazy to the world, but we don't live based on common sense. We, ba we live based on living in the fear of God, a reverence towards God. And I, I just want to tell you today, church, that we as the church, we can't control the whole church, obviously, but we as New Hope, we need to be committed to the fear of the Lord, that we're going to honor him, that we're going to esteem him above all else, all else our own needs, our own ambitions, our own drive, our own family, we would esteem him above everything, that he deserves it, and he's worthy of it. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, this is the beginning of the church, the early church. It says, Then the church grew throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace, and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. That's no coincidence that it increased because they were living in the fear of the Lord. We want the church to grow. Let's live in the fear of the Lord. It will draw people to our God when we revere him above all else. Would you stand with me, please? And I'll close. I do want to share one more verse with you this morning. I know I'm sharing a lot of Bible, but call me crazy. I, I believe it's the word of God that transforms us. My words don't mean much of anything without his spirit. But his words are powerful. First Chronicles 6, 20, 16, 25. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. You know, we've gone from, I think, I think there was a season in the church where people were afraid of God. Like they, they lived this holy life because they were just terrified that God was going to strike them dead if they did something wrong that's not how we're meant to live at all but i feel like in some ways the church has gone the other extreme and gotten out of balance where there's a lack of reverence towards our god a lack of honor to god we've we've almost minimized it like god's our buddy 
He's not our buddy. I know Jesus says, I've called you friends. And, and there's an aspect of God where he is our friend. But let me tell you something, church. He is our God. He is so high above us. We couldn't even begin to even think about seeing him or getting into his mind. His ways are so much higher. His thoughts are so much higher than ours. He is to be feared above all gods. Revered and honored above all gods. There should be a healthy fear in us when it comes to sin. Not that he's going to strike us dead, but that I, I, I would never want to do anything to dishonor my God after what he's done for me. Never want to do something to dishonor him. You know, we don't serve the gods that, like this. What he's talking about in Chronicles here, it was about, you know, idols that they would build, that they would literally construct these, these things to worship them. And there's these, you know, these deities that a lot of other religions worship, even still today, a lot in other countries especially. We don't do that so much here in the U.S. We've come up with our own gods. We have the God of prosperity. We have the God of comfort, the God of compromise, the God of entertainment that we bow down to, the God of money, the God of stuff, buying things, keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses, they get bowed down to every day. I don't know who those people are, but they're getting worshiped a lot. And God says, it says he is worthy to be worshiped. He is above all other gods. He is above all other gods. He deserves our lives and our worship. And he has called us to be nice and kind. And kindness in our life looks like living a life of truth, holding to the truth. Hallelujah. We are meant to hold to the truth and to be beacons of light to keep the deception from running rampant in our society. Beacons of truth. We are called to be caring and have conviction and character in our life and to advance the gospel for his glory. I just want to pray for us today. If you just pray with me, just believe that God can do his work in our hearts. So this wouldn't just be a word that you hear on a, Monday, on a Sunday morning, but it would produce fruit in our lives. So just receive this prayer today. Father God, I love you. I thank you today that your word is truth, that your word transforms us. Hallelujah. God, we love you today. Lord, would you do your work in our hearts? Lord, would you help us to live lives we're committed to the truth? That we're living lives that are sacrificial and that we're living lives where we fear you, where we honor you, God. And Lord, we have fallen short in that, Lord. Please forgive us. Lord, we turned from our sins and we turn towards you. And Lord, for anyone in this room or under the sound of my voice that has never given their life to you, never committed their ways to you and received your forgiveness, God, I pray that you would touch their heart today, that they would give their lives to you, commit their way to you and let you come in and dwell within them. Your word tells us that you stand at the door and knock. And if we open that door, you will come in and dine with us. I pray the Lord that none of us would go another minute not knowing that our eternity is set with you. We thank you for it today, Jesus. Seal this work in our hearts today for your glory, God, for your glory that's about you, Jesus. It is about you. We honor you and we worship you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. Can we give God praise? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God.